0: The Chinia family, thank you for tuning in to Chinia Maji Podcast, your one-stop shop for all startup news and stories. In this episode, we hosted Nick Quinton, CEO and co-founder of Pago Energy, a technology company in Nairobi that is building hardware and software solutions to help grow markets for LPG. This episode extensively gives background to the founding of the company, fundraising, scalability, as well as challenges and lessons learned along the way. Enjoy. How are you guys doing, Cheney Magi family? This is your host, Mark Karaki, uh, bringing you uh, yet another episode of the podcast. And this week we have the CEO of, and founder of Pago Energy, Nick Kintong. Did I say that right, Nick? Did I, did I butcher your last name? You
1: nailed it, Mark. It's perfect.
0: <laughs> okay, fantastic. So Pago Energy, uh, basically a technology company, startup, building hardware and software solutions to help grow markets in the LPG space, which is liquefied petroleum gas energy space, uh, with a focus in domestic, I guess, the cooking market here in Kenya, right? Is, is that right? Have I nailed it?
1: That's correct. Yep.
0: Okay, fantastic. So, Nick, um, thanks for being on the podcast. Super excited to hope be hosting you here. I've known about you guys for a while, um, and can't wait to hear the story uh, of, about, of how this came about, and, 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 and you, and you. all that so i guess first question is you know tell us about who you are and what's your background where did you grow up uh and how did you end up uh where you are today
1: yeah well thanks for having me mark appreciate it um yeah so quick background on myself uh i grew up in in the states i didn't grow up in in kenya Uh, a little town called bend oregon kind of up in the mountains uh, on the west coast so i'm an, an oregon boy um and yeah after college i went to school down in la i found myself in the corporate world so i was at general electric uh doing business development within their kind of healthcare space um and at one point i was, I was looking to do something a bit different Wanted to look at emerging markets something a little bit more impactful so i applied for a fellowship with kiva which is a, a microfinance mm-hmm. um, kind of technology uh, non-profit one of the first companies to do crowdsourcing
0: Um, i remember i know know about them yeah
1: -hmm. yeah they were kind of a they're still a pretty big uh non-profit but at the time it was um it was a really innovative uh concept so right at this fellowship with them they placed me in nairobi uh, and that's how i ended up here so i I, i'd say i came here somewhat randomly random for me and that i you know i wasn't intending to 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 land in kenya but maybe uh kiva intended to put me here but um yeah what i found when i got to kenya was a a beautiful place um an awesome Kind of startup ecosystem and a lot of smart people working on on cool stuff so i wanted to stay
0: that's fantastic and and what from a timing perspective when, when did that happen so how long have you been here and when did you get here and, and all that
1: yeah so i first came out in 2013 um, and i've been here pretty much since then so i was a kiva fellow in 2014 and then took a little bit of time to travel and then i came back in 2015 when we launched uh pago so yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Much that. uh, mm, that's fantastic. So I guess you're General Electric, big, one of the biggest corporations at one point. Uh, and, and what was the inflection point where you're like, yeah, I'm kind of done with this stuff? Because that's kind of, in a very real sense, the dream for a lot of people who are trying to get into the professional rank. So what was the inflection point or trigger moment when you're like, yeah, this is not what, what I want to do?
1: Well, you know, I... Um... I graduated in 2008, so I came into a really challenging market. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of opportunity out there. I was really proud that I secured a role at, at GE. I went through one of, one of their leadership programs. And even though I wasn't doing exactly maybe what I, I wanted to do, to me, I at, at that age, you don't really know what you want to do. But I, right. it wasn't perfect. I was just really um, thankful they gave me an opportunity in there, investing, you know, in my development. You know, that, that started to kind of wear off. At year three four and you start wondering where you're going and what does it all mean I wasn't um, I wasn't married at the time I didn't have um, you know I didn't have any kids and so I had the, the opportunity to have these kind of existential questions um, and yeah. once they start to take hold and you start um, wondering where this is all going Um, it can be really difficult to do your your day-to-day and so i think you know that you know the goal is to run a pnl over there i found that interesting but um i I wanted to yeah i I had some bigger ambitions to go go somewhere and do something that's a little bit more impactful a little bit bigger um and so i I started kind of poking around for what the next thing might be and this um kiva fellowship or something like that was like a chance to put the to toe in the water to test out an emerging market you know maybe work a little closer to like a startup type environment um and do something that that felt a little bit more impactful um and so that's when i decided to make make the leap but i had nothing bad to say um about GE and like i said they they took me in when um in 2008 when the world was a pretty pretty scary place for yeah. a, a, a recent college grad
0: <laughs> yeah that was a tough time and, and which which uh school did you go to
1: I went to the University of Southern California, so USC. Oh, USC. okay. Right. Yeah, based okay. in L.A.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think, was that the time you guys were going through the, the challenges with the NCAA? I think you guys were banned for a few years.
1: We, we had some, uh, some issues around recruiting, um, right. some stuff around Reggie Bush, Pete Carroll landed on his feet. But yeah, USC's football team hasn't fully recovered.
0: Yeah, there's That's a time good. you guys were really amazing, I think in the early 2000s and uh it's, right. it's never been the same since yeah okay any big games you went to while you were there
1: um no i i'm so bad with, with uh in college you know by by about halftime i'd had a few beers and i and there's a lot of sun down in Southern california <laughs> and i'd i'd end up heading i'd end up heading home so i didn't even make it through a lot of games I'm a little embarrassed to say that but I, I didn't sit through very many full games at uh at USC. Hey, and,
0: listen! You, you made it to the game. That's a, that's a win in a lot of ways, especially in college, that, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. Um, that's, so that's that's cool. Um, so I, I guess so. You end up in Nairobi with a Kiva fellowship, and and what was that about? Was it like what was a, what is that fellowship constructed around? Is it what's the theme there?
1: I mean, a fellowship is a fancy way of saying volunteer. I mean, you're really, you're you're coming into to help these guys kind of get up and running. What I was working on it was kind of two sets. It was a traditional kind of Kiva fellow that goes out and supports, she's like onboarding MFIs and doing some auditing of some of the uh, lendees. Uh, I was working on a new project called Kiva Zip, which I really mm-hmm. feel was kind of the precursor to branch. It was okay. um, an interesting project where they were trying to find ways you know, to do micro lending um, at a lower cost ultimately. Um, you know, to customers. So, how do you reduce a lot of the administrative costs? One of the challenges in um, in that space is that when you do a really small loan, you know, your cost to diligence and kind of underwrite even, um, you know, a hundred dollar loan is still pretty high. So, are there mm-hmm. ways to to reduce that cost? That's what KivaZip was doing, um, and I think it led to some of the um, the more kind of digital micro lending platforms in the future. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. That's, that's that's interesting. So I, I believe the founders of Kiva also are the founders of Branch? Is that is that what happened there?
1: Yeah, so um, Matt Flannery went over and, and started Branch um, and he brought, brought over um, Daniel uh, Jung over as well. So, um, no, Jung, sorry. Um, that, uh, I don't think he was a founder of Kiva, but he was one of the early employees.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting how things evolve. And so you find yourself in Nairobi uh, working on Zip, I guess is is the portfolio you're working on at the time. And and then yeah. how did how did the idea of Pago come about? And and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, what Pago is in your own words and then where the idea came from. What was the genesis of that?
1: Sure. Yeah, so I mean, um just kind of taking a step back I and mean, the challenge that we're going after is the the clean cooking challenge. It's about a billion households globally that are cooking with charcoal kerosene or wood every day makes them sick and, and generally it's more expensive than some of the alternatives um the challenges that people face when wanting to switch to a cleaner fuel is is usually just how it's priced and packaged so mm-hmm. the upfront cost of buying a cylinder and then um the recurring cost of having to refill it um in the markets that we're targeting you know doing piped gas systems uh doesn't really make sense i mean we're looking mm-hmm. at kind of densely populated, usually kind of informal areas where it'd be difficult to put in piped gas. So right. they're usually cooking with, with gas out of a cylinder and um, you know the, the way that it's priced is, is just difficult for the kind of livelihood of a low income household, right? So our technology um, is a smart meter that goes on top of a gas cylinder, turns it into a pay as you go device so you can buy gas on a fractional basis so Indeed. for someone that buys um, charcoal or kerosene in small amounts, they can now buy gas uh, in small amounts at the same cost or less. Um, and it's obvious it's a far better uh, cooking experience. It's safer you know, for your family. Um, and yeah, it's a step in the right direction. So that, that's what we're, um, what we're working on. The original idea came uh, from our co-founder who's named uh, Fausto Marsigat. So there was really five of us that were kind of co-founders and Fausto had the original idea um, you know, he was working at Sanergy at the time and was kind of just doing the back of the napkin math. And people were lining up to buy charcoal and kerosene, and talking to some of his colleagues about what they were spending, um, and just realized on a monthly basis it it added up to a lot more than gas. And so that kind of led to this question: on, Well, why aren't people cooking with gas? Mm-hmm. And you know, what is it about you know the, how the product um, is priced at, that that's basically pricing out the majority of the market? I mean, in Kenya, eighty percent of the population is not cooking with gas today. So you know, what what is really driving that? And you know, his background was in oil and gas. He's a mechanical engineer. He under understood kind of how general smart metering kind of technology works, and he thought there might be an application for it um, mm-hmm. to to change how gas is sold. And also at the time, a lot of the pay-as-you-go models were starting to take off. You know, in the solar space, so the model wasn't right. uh, that novel. It was something that was actually kind of in vogue at the time. So, could could you bring that over to gas? Uh, was the question?
0: Yeah, fantastic. And so just to understand how it, how it actually works. So I use a gas cylinder in, in uh, at home here. and you know you buy a thirteen kilogram cylinder or different packages, right? I think it at three different levels you can purchase this in. so in, in in terms of how you guys deploy this and make it available at a, at a fractal level, So, is it a cylinder that somebody purchases, and then what they use, they pay for? How how does this work? How does it, how does the delivery actually work?
1: Yep. So it's a meter that attaches attaches right on the top of the cylinder, so right on the Mm -hmm. valve, and it sits on the Mm -hmm. top, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it has you know a hose that goes out to your appliance for wherever you cook.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: To buy credit, you you use mobile money. So in Pesa here in Kenya is the the platform that we use. you can, once you, you know, top up your account, you can say by 50 shillings worth of gas. Um, you then, in up, our system updates the meter and says, hey, you've got, you know, X number of grams that you can cook with. It then meters out that gas really accurately. And when your balance reaches zero, it shuts off access until you top up again. So it really is kind of a prepay cooking experience. The gas, you know, is in your home, but you don't own what's in the cylinder. You own ah, just what's in what okay. you have
0: in your account. Got it. Yep. Got it. So you've you've expanded distribution and market for for the for the industry essentially.
1: Yes, I mean, our, you know, our mission is to really expand the addressable market for for LPG. So go after that eighty mm-hmm. percent uh, that mm-hmm. currently doesn't have access today.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, since you started, how how much have you grown that? that how much have you dug into that eighty percent, or where you at with your KPIs?
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, as, as a company, we're heavily front loaded with a lot of R&D. So to develop a gas meter, and you know, it has to be safe, it has to be accurate, it has to pass a lot of standards, um, it mm-hmm. needs to be pretty durable, and it needs to be really low cost, right? We're going into mm-hmm. um, the LPG industry, it's a, it's a commodity, margins are pretty thin. And so we have a lot of design challenges that we've had to overcome over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, taking this technology from prototype to where now we're uh, moving to high volume manufacturing. So, we produced our first 5,000 meters uh, this year, and we're cool. deploying in a bunch of different markets, not just Kenya. We've got meters out in the market here uh, in Congo, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, uh, in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we've, I think, is the, the normal trajectory for a lot of many more software kind of style startups is I think you can get a lot more uptake earlier on but for a hardware company mm-hmm. with a totally novel technology there's a there's a lot of r&d that has to happen um mm-hmm. but the good news is once you start to roll out um, if you've nailed kind of the the business model and have some product market fit you've got a pretty defendable uh business because it's it takes yeah. a lot of work to develop the hardware so mm-hmm. we're just really starting to commercialize this year um mm-hmm. but we have kind of all the the pieces in, in place really put this together for um for a few years at this point
0: that's exciting. That's that's really cool. So, um, I guess the first question I had in my mind is, would you do it again, knowing what you know about hardware right now? Maybe, maybe. You, <laughs> what what's your what's your quick answer on that one? Uh,
1: hardware, no. Hardware is <laughs> a, a nightmare. Yeah, definitely uh-huh. not. I mean, I I I mean, even if you if you just take a normal hardware path, which is really capital intensive, um, mm-hmm. it's really unpredictable. It's, it's incredibly challenging. Um, but then you know you take that path and you, you put a pandemic in the middle of it you can Oof, imagine yeah. how the global supply chain got hit obviously you know recently there's um global supply um shortage for for semiconductors i mean it's kind of one issue after the next with hardware um mm-hmm. and yeah i mean uh, i would say probably not but that being <laughs> said i'm happy that we've gotten over the uh the front end of it i mean the first few years were, were brutal getting to where we mm-hmm. are now Um, And Mm. now we're in a place where we're kind of calibrating um, and we've kind of landed on a product. The the platform is mature. It's been out in the wild for over a year. Uh, We've ironed out the kinks. We're rolling it out in different markets. I mean, once you start getting there, it's really fun. But up until this point, it's, it's pretty brutal. It's unpredictable. And it's, it's challenging too, for, for fundraising. A lot of investors don't really understand how to price risk around hardware. Um, And some of them don't, really even want to touch it, right? So Mm -hmm. it it makes even kind of your fundraising cycles and your proof points really challenging too. So Mm -hmm. short answer is no, no more, no more hardware. (laughs) Next one will be software.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, at least you've cut your teeth the hard way. So you're probably gonna be running downhill going forward uh, in terms of the next project you you take on. Um, And you you, you brought up the, the fundraising topic, which is always like crucial um what's that been like for you guys uh you know what have you you know what's that been like for you guys what have you raised uh talk about that a little bit if you don't mind
1: yeah um so i mean you've all looked at kind of normal uh kind of fundraising stories it's it's brutal kind of all consuming process to to raise capital no matter where you are um in the world um i think we had pretty classic chicken and the egg type challenges early on where we needed investment to build a gas meter and they wanted to see more gas meters you know out in the wild before they could give us investment. so we kind of retained that with some kind of seed funding um Mm -hmm. and yes we've raised a you know a series seed a series a and then last year we did a a convert so we've raised about eight million dollars so far um Mm -hmm. mostly kind of venture and impact kind of capital and then more recently, we brought strategics in. Um, yeah, as far as like the the kind of the process, I mean, I think the each point to point again with a hard for a hardware company, the the kind of goalposts are pretty challenging. I think to get to Series A, and you know, then we had to show that we had de risked that the feasibility mm-hmm. of the technology, we had to get enough proof points out there that you know the the key assumptions around the business model had been kind of rooted out. Um, we had to get to significant enough scale that, you know, the, the sample size, you know, and, and the, the kind of insights from our pilots, uh, were enough to get investors over the line going from series mm-hmm. A to series B, um, was another pretty big lift. And we need to take the technology from being feasible to being, you know, close to you know, commercially viable and, and scalable mm-hmm. I mean, to, to change your global supply chain, your production, uh, refine your design. Um, you know, there was a pretty big pretty big lift um
0: mm-hmm.
1: and on the business model side i mean you know we decided to go with the b2b business model so um Makes pretty nice. long sales cycle but um mm-hmm. it's hard to get as many users on quickly as you could with b2c so it's, it's showing that these partnerships are you know are stood up um the platform's kind of ready to go in these different markets that these guys can absorb uh you know a lot of meters the off off take is somewhat dearest and so it's taken us a while to get a lot of these kind of strategic partners in place. So I'd say going from series A to where we are now, we're, we're raising a series B this year, has maybe even been a harder a harder lift. Mm-hmm. Again, for a hardware company that has to, um, most companies are, you're trying to show product market fit at this point and, and you know, mm-hmm. you're calibrating your business model, but it's pretty, um, at this point, it's, it's pretty proven. For oh, a hardware yeah. company, you're doing all that. Plus um, you've got to take your your hardware through a couple leaps of development um, mm-hmm. And so you're kind of running these in parallel, which is really challenging. I mean, obviously, they, they affect each other. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, in short, it's been hard. There's also a lot of uh, ancient dynamics to kind of raising in East Africa um, as a mm-hmm. startup here. And then also in the LPG space, which, you know, there's lots of strategic investors. we we're, um, were kind of blessed in that way. There's lots of folks are interested in digitization in LPG. Um, so, you know, our sector is really kind of activated and interested around startups and, and wants to do um, innovative stuff. So we've been able to find that, that support um, recently. So
0: That's cool. That's cool. So in terms of timeline, right, uh, now you're at your series B. Just give, give us a sense of, OK, you, you started at this date and these are the different separate phases. If you could somehow uh, deconstruct that. That timeline into phase, a phased approach would be Ooh. helpful.
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean I, this idea was bouncing around Fausto's head, and he was chatting with the other founders. I mean, you know, I'm not back in even 2014 to be honest. Um, mm. I always say that you know, for me, Pego really started in, in August of 2015, and that's because that's when the first myself and Fausto went full time on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you no, know, people have been working on it before then. Um, you know, the time we had a you know uh prototype um we had some kind of initial market research but that, that was really it um and so that's when we really started and then yeah with, between there and seed i mean there's a lot of work being done to get i you know our patent filed um our first looks like works like prototype um we rooted out a lot of assumptions on the market side uh through kind of pallet testing in nairobi and kind of market research then after the seed round we started showing you know, technology feasibility, so getting more actual meters out into customers' homes. And um, how much was your seed round and, round, and yep.
0: how much was your how much was your seed round, and where did you raise it from, if you if you could? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this um the seed round was about one point four million dollars. Um, okay. It was co-led by Novastar and Energy Access Ventures. Uh, before that, we'd raised some money from Catalyst Fund and Global Innovation Fund um, mm-hmm. and a couple of others to kind of keep the mm-hmm. lights on. Mm-hmm. We want um Village Capitals Hardware Africa uh, mm-hmm. competition, which
0: mm-hmm. we really had
1: to win to kind of keep the lights on. So we had like kind of incremental money coming in. Uh, yeah, yeah. The seed round was the first proper round. And then we raised a $3.5 million Series A
0: um, in uh, August 2018. Okay, and who led that? Was it still Novastar or?
1: Yeah, same same uh, same guys. So co-led again mm-hmm. by uh, Energy Access Ventures and Novastar.
0: Wow. I mean that is, that's that's amazing to actually raise that amount of capital in this market. It's almost I'm not sure with local VCs and I'm, Energy Accesses are they local? Because I know are local.
1: Yeah, they're they're based here.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I know. Um, I have a friend who actually is at uh, Energy Access. I, I forget his name right now. It will come to me. But that's amazing. That's unprecedented to raise with local VCs. A local startup here for that amount that has to be some kind of record i would imagine would you what what do you what's your uh, sense
1: i don't know if it's a record um but uh yeah i think we, we were the one of the earlier startup groups that kind of come through here these are some of the funds you know that had just kind of gone and set up and so we were definitely right. one of the earlier ones to secure funding um mm-hmm. and yeah we were obviously um, very excited i mean if you go through kind of the startup journey when you you know it's not all about raising money right it's not building a company but um right. usually you're running out of money and usually you're pretty exhausted so when a round <laughs> closes and and you survive to, to fight another day it's uh you're pretty elated um yeah usually it's yeah. A, a trip down to havana or something like that for a beer or two or three awesome. you usually get yeah. pretty excited so yeah we were we felt um we've always felt that we were you know, we had a huge you know, idea, something that could be a, a world-changing product. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. we, we felt like people didn't, uh, weren't seeing it the same way. And then when mm-hmm. you also, when you raise around and someone actually puts millions of dollars down because they believe in what you're doing, it, it's also really validating.
0: It's a big deal, yeah. Uh, and so, how big is the opportunity? Uh, what, what are you guys going after here?
1: I mean, it's it. it it literally is a, a billion homes. I mean, it's 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 massive. I mean, as I mentioned, we're, we're launching in lots of different markets because this is not a, a problem that's that's unique uh, to Kenya. I mean, there's right. a couple of things coming together here. You have one, um, you know, a pretty old industry that really hasn't innovated that much in the last 50 mm-hmm. years. And so there's a mm-hmm. huge opportunity for digitization in general and downstream um, uh, cooking gas and that whole, whole sector. And then you have, um, you know these emerging markets where uh, you've got rapid urbanization. Um, you know the place is growing really fast, like in Kenya, but you still have huge amounts of the population that are not really fully connected to the grid, even living in right. formal areas. Um, and they're spending a ton of money on lots of different services, including energy. And so it's mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. it's an opportunity for us both um, commercially to be kind of the first to connect them. You know to to gas and, and have a distributed utility that they can connect to. And then also on the impact side, um, to go in there and, and crack, what is it really, um, a horrible disservice where you're giving someone a really poor, I mean, you know, just take the health side out of it. It's really con- mm-hmm. inconvenient to cook with charcoal, yeah. um, and, mm-hmm. uh, provide someone a much better service at a, at a lower cost. So it's, it's a massive opportunity and yeah, we're talking about millions of homes around the world that, uh, need it today.
0: Yeah, well, it seems like you're just on the launch pad of a of a of a rocket ship here. I mean, based on where that's you are right now, <laughs> that's awesome. But I'm sure yeah. the digging from from the basement up to where you are right now, the foundation, you know, those five years. It's been is it six years now, right? August 2015.
1: It, it's half. I mean, I swear, half the hair on my head's missing, and I've gained about 20, 30 pounds. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many years it's been, but I, I got other ways to measure. Uh, it's it's been a long time but it's a uh, right. there's a reason why you know we uh, you know we've stuck around is that this the opportunity is is big we believe we've got the right solution we're getting the right, right signals from the market from the industry from investors and right. we just need to stay the course you know it's just um, hardware is yep. hard um, and we had to get it over this this kind of cycle and obviously we had to show some durability too as the Right. You know you can't handle you know you can't um, plan for stuff like a um, you know pandemic. You just have to right. to kind of fight your way through it.
0: Right, and obviously being able to execute as well as you guys have, right, in a in a tough space, pandemic, and everything speaks to you as a as a person and your team. I'm sure. So, talk a little bit about what the secret sauce has been in terms of what's gotten you here, um, specifically with, with with the team, because you don't have a good team it's it's doa right
1: yeah i mean it's, it's startup is pretty much an idea and a team um that's that's what you've got and i think we at pago we even early days we you don't really articulate your values you just kind of um the founding team just kind of um you know represents them and kind of hires folks that kind of um mirror the same values and so um i think you know we had a good kind of founding culture and we were able to get in some really smart people that believed in what we were doing and um you need people that are mission driven that are not purely financially driven uh, because right. when it when when shit hits the fan and it will um those are the guys that will that will hang around um, right. and they want to be a part of something that's going to be you know, potentially world-changing. It's more about mm-hmm. that experience than it is about just purely the financial upside. And so we have a lot of those kind of believers on our team. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, we've been through some pretty hard times. I mean, execution's always been there as far as, you know, people um, will always do what's necessary to get it done. The team's, you know, very clever um, at kind of cracking cracking challenges. And um, and it's pretty malleable too for, you know, when we have to change course i think that the team also mm-hmm. has shown that as well but the main thing i think that we've shown is just durability i mean I, when things are are going wrong um different types of folks you know are are in the room some folks dig in and that's when they do their work when things are when things are going wrong they really step up and step into it and some people that's when they they want to call it a day and i think it we've got right. the kind of guys that go okay let, let's go to work and that's a right. that's a that's a cultural thing
0: that's fantastic. And it, it sounds like that was just happenstance. I mean, you can't, you, I mean, you get what you get sometimes. Did you intentionally go out and find people with a certain kind of resilience, attitude, values, or was that just something that was fortunate that happened to you guys? A bit of both.
1: luck. I think a bit of both. Yeah, a lot of luck, right? You Just kind of hiring. Probably startups too. It's like, you know, your your man your founding team, your management team, a lot of them, it's could be their first rodeo, right? So you can't right. claim you're like this incredible person at hiring. You're just, you're hoping to get lucky. You've got some values in mind. Um, I think when you're doing what we're doing, um, it attracts a certain type of, of folks. I mean, if you yeah. know, we, we're a hardware company, you know, we're trying to work on a problem that no one has really fully cracked yet. Um, it's going to be years until, you know, we start seeing like significant growth. And so you kind of get um, people with a chip on their shoulder that want to prove something, I think, come mm-hmm. into an organization
0: like that. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So it could just be also um, just kind of a, a reflection of the type of company we are. Right, right.
0: Yeah. The problem, the challenge, the problem you're trying to solve attracts, I guess, yeah. signal finds its target, if you will, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, so when you look at, I think about this a lot in terms of the intersection of culture and, you know, just general, you know, uh, cultural domain in which you're operating in, and the, the reality of startups and the challenges and the types of people needed to make startups work. And I've always felt, and I strongly believe that there's a big disconnect between the local culture and, and the history and here uh, and and what is required to actually build innovation. Um, and I would venture to say, what, what's your view on that? Because to do what you've done requires people, like you said, who can defer financial gain in the present for that impact and that long-term potential of being part of a something transformational. And that's not the mindset, generally speaking, here, right? In terms of local talent, um, is that has that been consistent with your experience, or did you find the, the, the edge cases in terms of your team, or what's and against and that speaks to the composition of the people you attracted. Right? How has that worked out for you?
1: And it's a good point. I think there's a couple of things here. One is, um, you know, I, in East Africa uh, in general, we need more wins. I think people, the more companies yes. that are successful, yeah. um, the the more people will start valuing, you know, equity and, and options, right? Um, mm-hmm. And joining mm-hmm. early com- stage companies. Um, I think we also need, probably need more companies that uh, reflect the context in which they're they're working in and so i think Mm -hmm. you're going to see more kenyan founders uh that are leading companies and um you know kind of showing um yeah local talent that this is something that we should be investing in um and things that we should should bet on and i think we're seeing another generation of that happening here um as well but there's also a lot of i mean we've Kind of a a couple examples of kind of diaspora hires where folks have gone to the US or Europe and worked either um, in corporate or startup environments where they get kind of exposed to, you know, the, the power of, um, and how much value can be created in an early stage company um, and, and how you can be a part of that. And they're bringing that back to Kenya as well. So I think that it's I think it's shifting. I think we're seeing a lot more people that are yeah. that are valuing it. I think we're seeing a change in the composition of the founding teams. Um, I think we're seeing a, a shift um, hopefully in, in how capital's being deployed here. Um, so I, I'm seeing it I'm seeing it, every sort of ecosystem goes through a few cycles. you know you usually great. start in a place like Kenya where um, you've got some really great universities, you know really smart you know local talent, you have some initial mm-hmm. investors that come in. And Mm -hmm. you need the whole ecosystem to develop, you need people to need some wins, you need, you know, better investors, better engineers, better operators, and and each cycle, they get better and better. Um, And I'm kind of proud that I was on one of the earlier cycles here, but it's not the end of the story here. um, And it's Mm going to keep getting better. So I think it's shifting for definitely for the better.
0: I, I I totally I couldn't agree more with you on that. It just feels different than even maybe two three years ago, right? Um, yeah. Things are things have evolved pretty quickly. And as we wrap up here, man, I mean, um, what would you? What are some of the lessons learned? And maybe what would you do different looking back? Right? Uh, maybe get as specific as you can, high level as you want to be on this.
1: Ooh. Um. I'll leave hardware alone at this point. So one time, you that you <laughs> that's loud and there. clear. <laughs> that came through pretty clearly. Um, I think one is, I would look at the goalposts from point to point really carefully. Uh, startups, you don't have much time, you don't have much resources, and um, being slightly off on what it is you're trying to hit versus what the market wants to hear can be a can be an existential. Uh, issue for your company Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. a couple times where you know we felt we hit the mark but we didn't really fully hit the mark and we checked Mm -hmm. ahead of time with a few folks that you know gave us their best kind of guess of what we should be trying to do from here to there um -hmm. but we probably should have gone out and and looked a little bit broader to kind of triangulate if if these are the really the the highest quality activities for us to be doing will this give us the real inflection point or not Mm -hmm. um so, and I, when I say like specific there, it's, you know, how many, you know, somebody might say, hey, you know, to, to get from series A to series B, you need X number of units um, mm-hmm. out uh, in the market or out in the wild. And you mm-hmm. should ask yourself, wait, what is it that, you know, or ask this person, what is it where, you know, what's the significance of that of that number? Is it, is it because you're trying to test the, the technical feasibility of it? You wanna see that many meters functioning, you wanna know how many fail, you wanna see um you know did you want some more about stress testing the technology or is it on mm-hmm. the customer side and if it's on the mm-hmm. customer side is mm-hmm. it that you want to see those meters you know in the home or you want to see payments coming through or gas being consumed so the deeper you go into each of these proof points the better because you start to actually hone into oh actually this is a this is a, a question around unit economics is that if you don't Got see it. this kind of consumption at the household level the mm-hmm. revenue model is not going to work or, or oh, this mm-hmm. is a a question around how mature the platform is, and really, it's about cycles of data and, and how long this thing has been out there um, to show durability. And um, I think the, as a startup founder, you've got to get really, really, really focused on what it is you're trying to prove, so you mm-hmm. can knock it out of the park and hit that next inflection point. Um, hardware, it's obviously it's uh, exaggerated because you're you're so limited in the kind of and how many homes you can get at each stage, depending right. on what your hardware looks like. Right. But I think it's for any, for any company. So that, that would be one. I think on the investor side, uh, a lot of times I think startups are, are just kind of starved for capital and they're out there yeah. looking for money. And, um, I, I think we dodged a couple bullets potentially with some investors that wouldn't have been a good fit. We also found some great investors. Um, but spending a lot of time thinking about, um, what is your, what are the, what is your best looking investor, um, who is that going to be what is the value they're going to bring to your business what is the relationship you want to have with them at the Mm -hmm. board level um how involved do you want them in the business do you want someone that's super active and really involved day to day do you want someone more passive do you want a strategic that's um got a really long view but a very direct interest in what and where they think your technology should go in their own operation um i think a lot of folks just kind of go out fundraising and the goal is to raise is to raise money it's not to find this this great investor. And I think now in, in East Africa, there's a lot more active investors. I think the market dynamics here have changed. And mm-hmm. um, if founders have a really fundable kind of company and story, they should be really selective about who it is that they, they bring in. So I would say yeah. that'd be another key learning. The last one is on the, um, on the team side, I think, you know, we started with a pretty big founding team, we got a lot of uh crap for that everyone's like there's no way that you know five co-founders is ever going to work um i don't think there's any kind of magic number around the right co-founders but Mm. um you do need to be early on um figure out kind of where what is your near-term kind of role and value that you as a founder are going to bring and and where do you think you fit long term um and make sure that if longer term you're having to you know, you're gonna have to specialize over time what is going to be your superpower in the future and how are you developing it from here to there um, and then how do you create space for others to come in and create a culture that's really inclusive for new folks to come in and be a part of the story so i think for us as a founding team of five that can work um but there's some there's some work that needs to be done on the front end around thinking about being really honest with yourself you really self-aware about What's my value today? What is my value to this business at different kind of orders and magnitude? And how am I going to help create an environment for other folks to come in and be successful here? Because um, if you can't do that, um, it, it's just not going to work.
0: Yeah. Misalignment. Yeah. That's that's a huge one, which you probably only learned later on, because especially if it's your first time doing it. I mean, that's such a deep, key, crucial thing that breaks most companies. and. Maybe give us some context in terms of how, maybe very quickly, how that became apparent for you. Because it's clearly rearview mirror right now, I would imagine, right? It's not like yeah. something you knew five years ago, right? Um, how, did that, how did that become so clear to you?
1: I, I actually think our, our team is pretty self-aware, you know, based on our backgrounds. We're we're, we're relatively young as a founding team. So we're, when we're thinking about a big, exciting about a big idea is that it's big. Um, you know, but it's also really immense. And so we're like, man, there's certain levels that, that this business will go to, or, you know, we don't really have the skills to execute on that, right? you know, stage of the business, or that's, just too complex for me to really get my head around like, Oh, well, that actually is a known thing. There are people out there in the world that know how to crack that. Um, mm-hmm. and we got to make sure we create space for them at that stage. So we'd have these kind of talks early on.
0: Okay. Um, so you guys were self aware, sure. which is, which is quite, again, Again, very interesting. Five five person founding team. That level of I just, awareness, wow. I, I, look, I mean,
1: I, I think it's easier uh, to be said over beers, right? Than in practice. In practice, that means like stepping aside, right? And creating, like, right. creating space is a really gentle way of saying like you know getting out of someone else's space. So, right. Um, right. I, even though we we you know had these conversations and we we're kind of ready for it, um, mm-hmm. when it does happen, it's a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you just get out in yeah. front of it um, yeah. as a group. I mean, for myself. You know over time i have to realize that look i where i was adding value at, at this stage in the business um there's someone else better positioned and i need to get out of their way and right. i think a lot of founders just feel because you know whatever title you gave yourself when the company started that you you magically know about everything and you can check in on everyone's business And that clearly isn't the case right so um you said that yeah you gotta check yourself
0: um right right
1: for sure so yeah easy easily said easier said than done
0: i think yeah yeah Fantastic. This is some fantastic lessons. Um, and like you said, it's easier said over easier maybe communicated over beers than than over a podcast. But um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, uh, Nick. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to you. And I guess final parting shot here: a couple of things. So, what does success look like for PayGo in 2030, and what does success look like for the East African African tech ecosystem in in, in 2030? Wow,
1: 2030. Um... Well for us you know i I think we've completely changed the way that that gas is is sold you know around the world, not just in emerging markets but um in all markets i think that uh distributed utilities is it makes a lot of sense in a lot of different kind of contexts and um having you know smart you know cylinders uh, smart um infrastructure that's moving fuels really efficiently through and everyone can afford it. We've actually brought the cost of fuel down because we've become so efficient. Uh, This is a really exciting place, I think, for us to be and be at the forefront in 2030. So millions and millions of customers, everyone's really happy with this incredibly seamless kind of virtual pipeline to their home, no matter where they are. Um, That's what should be happening in 2030. As far as the, the ecosystem here, we need we need some wins. Um, I want to see a couple unicorns coming out. I'd love to see some Kenyan founders uh, leading some unicorns in, in 2030. Um, I think the everyone knows that um, you know Africa is one of these next you know, huge growth markets, and I think Kenya's at the forefront of it. So of all the opportunity in Africa, I've Kenya is a special place in my heart. So I want to see the winners coming out here, alongside other places like you know Nigeria and Ghana, et cetera. But I'd like to see some some Kenyan unicorns um, in 2030 for sure. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: Fantastic. Great place to stop. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and yeah, I can't wait to see, uh, maybe GE will acquire PayGo, and you'll go back to where you started. <laughs> the way
1: GE, the way GE is going, we might acquire GE. No, <laughs>
0: that's even better. That's even better. That's even a better way to put our... I didn't say that. ...on the Talk. (laughs) We're definitely not going to edit that one out. That stays in. (laughs) All right, man.
1: All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for the time.